Hello, and welcome to Movies We Dig, the podcast about film, antiquity, and everything in between. I'm Colin McCormick. And I'm Elijah Fleming. And I'm Christy Vogler. Woo! Yes, we are joined here again today by Dr. Christy Vogler, our Green Ranger, controlled by Rita Repulsa. <laughs> and we're here to talk about Jason and the Argonauts, a 1963 independent mythological fantasy adventure film produced by Charles H. Schneer and directed by John Chafee. And Creatures Designed by Ray Harryhausen. Continuing kind of off our, what we started talking about at Clash of the Titans, I suspect I have I want to come back and continue on some thoughts on Clash of the Titans. But first, let's get everyone's thoughts. So Eli, Christy, did you dig this movie? No. <laughs> Short answer. Podcast over. <laughs> Done. I, I feel like this movie ended so abruptly and... I feel like there were parts of it that could have really been shortened down to sort of give a a more holistic narrative. Like maybe in a broader sense, I think that every story about Jason and the Argonauts should just be called Medea. And she was in the movie for 30 minutes and did nothing. So I was just disappointed, I guess. Yeah, this is someone who named her golden retriever Medea. Which is the least Medea of dogs. She, she is a golden retriever. She is not bloodthirsty. So she got demoted to Dia because she can't live up to the full name. Yep, but yep. that goes to show like how much I love Medea as a character and how, I will say, I liked this better than Clash of the Titans. Partly because I think what we talked on last week where it felt that Perseus literally is doing nothing of his own volition. Like Jason's like, I have a dream. And I shall achieve it. And all right, I got duped. But we're on this adventure now. So let's go. And so I did appreciate that. Like it felt more intentional in the adventure at the very least. So I liked it better. But as Elijah said, it's like there's not enough Medea. And there really needs to be a lot more Medea as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I... I think this is good because I will go on as much to say I actually do dig this movie, although I absolutely commiserate with the lack of the absence of Medea and and particularly the choices they made vis-a-vis Jason and Medea because there's a very particular, maybe even inversion of these characters Mm -hmm. from what we get, particularly in classical literature. But yeah, I, I like this. I think this is, I agree with the general consensus that this is probably the best Harryhausen film, I would say. I think it has the most sort of developed script and and plot and to a lesser extent acting. But this is also a movie that I have like weird sort of lapses with because like I don't even know if or when I because I I feel like I had seen this movie before, although I couldn't really tell you when. I feel like I've always have seen this movie, although (laughs) last or the other night when I sat down to watch it was maybe like one of maybe one or two times I've actually really like sat down and watched it beginning to end. I don't know if either of you when you saw it for the first time if this was a repeat or a first time viewing uh, that movie class again so sword and sandals mm-hmm. film class women college um i think we watched this before because i think we we're going in chronological order so we had just watched cleopatra more or less and then we were getting into these taking us to clash of the titans so which is for me why I had the memory i could have sworn the skeletons were in the clash of the titans and not this one <laughs> i will say that In terms of the monsters for this movie, they make a lot more sense in my head than some of the creatures that got included in Clash of the Titans. Like Clash of the Titans had maybe too too many monsters without anything to tie it to mythology, really. Calibos being one of the the big ones, even though that was a fun addition. Versus like the skeletons, that was like cool. 
and was really hard work, but it was being tied to the actual myth of the dragon sewn teeth men. So it's like, okay, that works. That is just one way to imagine them. So Yeah, I agree. I I did really like the monsters actually. I loved Colin's background right now is Talus, the big bronze guy. I thought that fight was really cool. Um, especially him like picking up the boat and it, that was really dramatic. And so yeah, I feel like the effects almost worked better in in this one than in Clash of the Titans. But I I this was the first time I had ever seen this movie. This was the first time I had ever seen Clash of the Titans. And I just I feel like there's so much potential and this is something that I can come back to when we talk about plot that I I just wanted more. I wanted so much more from it. Yeah, I Leo you gonna can you not <laughs> he's like he's rubbing his face all over the the monitor and being a being a bit of a nuisance <gasps> hello handsome are you gonna attack oh, talos for us yes. yes get the big scary monster <laughs> i'm recording all this on zoom too so i can get these pictures to, yes. to put on twitter this is the matchup i want actually yes. <laughs> giant cat versus giant monster <laughs> So yeah, speaking of giant cat versus giant monster, uh, one of the things I did in preparation for for this is I watched a documentary called Ray Harryhausen Special Effects Titan, which is a you know ninety minute documentary about Ray Harryhausen. I learned a lot about the man and his life and his work, which I found very fascinating. But one of the the thing I kind of first wanted to talk about because uh, Christine mentioned that in this class, like this movie comes out in nineteen sixty three, so basically we're right at the tail end of that golden era of Hollywood sword and sandal which we talked about a few of them last semester so same year i think as cleopatra or within a year of cleopatra mm -hmm. a couple years after spartacus ben-hur quotas a little bit before but there's this whole slew and all of those themselves are coming off of no exaggeration like a hundred italian peplum films these sort of sword and sandal italian about hercules and goliath and all these like sort of classical and biblical story where it was this whole industry uh and this also this i think more fits into that sort of time and place although at the same time this movie stands out apart from them because it's it's a bit different from the rest of them whether those are kind of very high drama historical period pieces this one is kind of more it's got one foot in that zone but mm -hmm. also another foot in the like creature feature film which is where harry harryhausen really sort of cuts his teeth like he got the inspiration to enter the movie business after he saw king kong in 1933 <laughs> or something like that he was 13 he was born in like the 20s and he died in in uh 2013 wow. which is just kind of crazy to think about yeah so he 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 saw king kong when he was like 13 and he was like this is amazing and then went on to make his own puppets and start doing his own films and features and then eventually actually teamed up with willis o'brien who was the special effects creator of king kong they did mighty joe young and then from there harry house and made a bunch of these creature features like the beast from 20,000 fathoms and it came from below and flying saucer films and, and guanji and like all of the like a lot of dinosaurs and so like this film is also why it's simultaneously like a little bit of that kind of historical epic sword and sandal kind of like ben-hur it's also kind of that like b film they actually had to fight to get this movie to be featured in like as like an a film to be played on a a theater as <laughs> opposed to like b flicks but it's got that like creature feature effect where was I going with this thought? <laughs> but yeah, so this movie is, it is sort of a much more, I think this movie is compared to Harryhausen's other films and particularly Clash of the Titans that we just watched, it's more interested in its human drama 
Although I think there are certain shortcomings, we'll say, mm -hmm. particularly towards the end of the film mm -hmm. that we'll talk about. Uh, but it's also like deeply interested in its creatures and where it, it departs a little bit. But Jason is a sort of a great myth because it, this movie was also the precursor to this film was uh, The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, which is a very similar kind of narrative. It's a journey narrative where, you know, you, you travel to different islands and there's different monsters and, you know, there's a different creature sort of at every place. And so Jason is kind of that. So which is why, why I think the movie sort of is very much kind of front heavy with that stuff, the journey mm -hmm. part of Jason's myth, yeah, as opposed to the back half, which is him coming back from Colchis with the Golden Fleece and the after the quest with Medea, which gets a lot of treatment in, in classical sources. So I've, I've talked too much already. So someone please take the mic. <laughs> well, I was just going to say like that, that was the question I had was like, did a sequel happen? Because it literally left it. It's like get Zeus and Hera, like round two, my love. And you're like, okay, <laughs> where's round two? <laughs> <laughs> it's where we can get some hot Medea action finally. I, I almost it's almost like the the Iliad or not the Iliad it's almost like the Aeneid like it ends and you're like wait that's it and you're like there's got to be more <laughs> yeah yeah for me this was sort of the classic and this kind of weirded me out that this is what I thought of it as it's like the heist story like Jason is basically Danny Ocean in Ocean's Eleven he like wants, he like gathers his team, like has all the games to like get his crew together. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like going to steal the thing, whether it's money or the golden fleece. It's like the thing is valuable, but it's more about what like accomplishing the heist means for them. But like Danny Ocean, it means he gets to like humiliate the guy that his ex-wife is dating. And for Jason, it's like, it means that I'm powerful and amazing and can take over my kingdom again. So it just, it had such heist vibes that almost made sense that it's like, well, yep, the hero won. We like, got it. It's over now? That gives me an idea because Eli, you're, you're, you're getting onto, first of all, that's the classical reception that I think we I want to see. I want to see a, an ancient um, myth, but told in the genre of like a heist film. Exactly. Which is why I was like kind of disappointed. I was like, this could have been the heist movie. Like it could have been deep into that genre. And I think it just sort of fell into it accidentally. But that's one of the, that's something that actually I, I that gives me an idea of, I think, what I, something I did want to talk about. We talked a little bit about uh, in our last season when we were doing those sort of golden era sword and sandals, how the sword and sandals genre is kind of funny as a genre because it it's almost like a it's almost like a genre isolate because it's it's really like defined more than anything else by its setting although there are tropes that accompany the genre like it tends to be about heroic men who win a battle or something like that and, and get the girl and but it has like it has it, it's the features of the genre sort of stay relatively contained to the genre in the ways that other like the maybe the most comparable genre is the western which is also kind of sort of tied to a time and place. Um, and maybe you could also say like a Regency mm -hmm. period, you know, like, yeah. a, like a Jane Austen kind of stuff, like what's also, but even the Western and the Regency stuff can get ported out or like there's genre crossing. You'll see a little bit more than I feel like you see with sword and sandals where you could get like, you have what you can have Westerns that are also sci-fis right. or Regencies that, um, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, like yeah, 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 yeah. Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, yeah, that's like a great example of a genre blending. But but this is like Eli mentioning of like the idea of doing like a, a mythologically based heist film is something like we don't really see all that much unless you play D and D with me. Um, but 
But in the way that, uh, but this film is kind of interesting because it is kind of a little bit genre jumping where it, it escapes. It's, it's a little bit apart from the other sword and sandals. Like it isn't quite in the same wheelhouse as like Spartacus and Cleopatra and Ben-Hur because it's also got that foot. And this is courtesy of Ray Harryhausen in the like, you know, it came from 20,000 fathoms and, and things like that. Like what, you know, the monster, the monster flick. Uh, and that kind of thing. Well, and I, I wonder if it has to do something with the source material because admittedly, the actual voyage of the Argonaut is weird and I don't fully know the whole story because the Argonautica was uh, written down. I'm forgetting the name now, but it's a Hellenistic. Yeah, I have so many thoughts. Okay. This is my wheelhouse. And, and <laughs> But it's it's so interesting in terms of like, I know the Medea side so well because this story has been in the background. It's almost like this is the Avengers and it's like, do you even Argo, man? Like if you didn't go on the Argo, <laughs> are you even a hero? Because it's mm-hmm. mentioned in the Iliad, I'm pretty sure. And then Euripides play Medea. And Medea is believed by the Greeks to have gone and founded the Medes as part of the Persian Empire, which is why she's a badass. She never actually dies. She just kind of like, well, Jason sucks and I took care of that onto better things. <laughs> so there's like so much material out there that we don't actually know early on how people perceived the voyage. We get this later adaptation of it and it's it's weird. I will say that. Yeah. It is kind of weird. I can I can speak at length about the Argonautica unless okay. Eli, you want to jump in. That's good because I I, no, I tried Wikipedia it again. I'm like uh, uh, I'm, no, I'm I, lost. I, it's, so like Christy mentioned, Apollonius's Argonautica is a I guess at least in the Greek literary tradition a little bit on the later side of the kind of core canon of Greek literature. It's actually in the scheme of ancient history, it's not that late. But that's another fight I'll have later because the poems <laughs> that I'm interested in come from like post BC. Or CE if you're an archaeologist. Common era, we like Common that. era. Yeah. Anyways, Apollonius's Argonautica is in a lot of ways like kind of a deconstruction in some ways because in that poem particularly, it really gets into, and this is I think interesting in relation to the film because in Apollonius's telling of the Argonautica, it's a very kind of like almost like postmodern take on this hero's adventure that is really interested in drawing out all of Jason's flaws, for lack of a better word. Like all of the individual scenes in the Argonautica featuring Jason and the Argonauts don't reflect terribly well on Jason. And in adi- and particularly when we get Medea herself in that poem, her depiction in the Argonaut is very much looking or anticipating an older play that, that Christy just referred to, the Euripides Medea, which is the most famous depiction of that character in literature, but precedes Apollonius' Argonautica by at least 100 years. And, you know, so our, so Apollonius's Argonautica is very much looking forward to the character that Medea will become in that play. I actually wrote a comp exam on this when I was in graduate school. <laughs> Still on the brain. And so, interestingly, to bring it back to the Harryhausen movie, this movie is very interested in making Jason a heroic and a, you know, in a very sort of traditional, both for cinema in the mid 20th century and kind of in the ancient context. Jason is a very heroic character in a way that he is decidedly not in a lot of our ancient sources. Yeah, no, Jason has always been my like favorite, least favorite or like the hero you love to hate because he's he does nothing. He like gets all of his help from Medea. He's like such a slob and the doesn't he die when like the heel of the Argo like 
falls on him or something. Mm-hmm. Like, yep. Yeah, I want to talk about the hero's <laughs> later lives because very rare in mythology <laughs> that heroes sort of die peacefully or well. Yeah, so he definitely falls into that sort of thing of just he exists and he is a hero and anything that he does therefore is heroic even if he's actually just an extremely mediocre dude who just like wandered into situations. In some ways, to, to make the connections that our, our listeners so love and hold dear, Jason in the Argonautica is kind of like a realization of the flawed Perseus that we were talking about in Clash of the Titans, where we were like, Perseus doesn't really do that much. He doesn't really think for himself. He's along for the ride. Bubo and Thalo and the gods kind of do everything for him. And the Argonautica, Apollonius' Argonautica, really kind of brings that to light. Because so in... To give listeners a, a sense, if they're not familiar with a third century poem, the, the sort of individual scenes that Jason does is he goes to the Isle of Lemnos, where it's ruled by all women, and Jason basically seduces their queen, or he falls in love with the queen, or him and the queen shack up, and then eventually, I think it's Hercules, mm-hmm. or Heracles, yep. has to be like, uh, guys, we got to get back to the quest. And so all <laughs> the Argonauts and Jason have to leave the Lemnian women. They also, there's an event where they land at a sort of friendly kingdom who who treat them, and then they get turned around in the night, and they land back at this kingdom, and then the kingdom thinks that they're enemies, and they get into a fight, and Jason kills their king. It's one of only two people Jason kills in that poem. And it's a friendly king in a, in a mistake. There's also this whole scene, and this I think is a good segue, where in the beginning of the poem where Jason has assembled the heroes and he, they get on the Argo and Jason is like, okay, now it's time for us to vote for a leader. And every single hero turns and looks at Heracles. Mm-hmm. And Heracles <laughs> has to basically be like, maybe let's let Jason lead. <laughs> I... Yeah, I loved Hercules, Heracles in this mm-hmm. movie. I thought he was excellent. I was so sad when he left. <laughs> yeah, Heracles played by... Nelson Green? Yep, Nelson, Ni- Nigel Green. Sorry. Nigel Heracles Green, played excuse by me. Nigel, Nigel Green. Green. Who apparently I read just like did not get along with the actor who played Hylas, his little friends, <laughs> until they both got injured on set and they like had to spend time recuperating in the hospital and then they were like best friends for life. Yeah, <laughs> like, it, it was the scene excellent. where it's where they go into Talos's treasury and they basically there was they had like a really bright light for like when they opened the door and both John Carney who played Hylas and Nigel Green were like blinded by the oh lights God. that they used. <laughs> Which is the whole like you know, I was watching this documentary and they were describing like Ray Harryhausen on set and he would just be like holding like eyeballs on sticks for like for the actors for their eye lines or like acting around and be like you're looking at a giant pterodactyl or whatever like this creature is coming and like I need you you know to scream or wave your spears or whatever it is and so yeah exactly they they bonded in the um in the hospital for like the temporary blindness they endured while on the set of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but let's talk about Talos because that is a that's our first stop, basically. Well, do we want to talk about Talos or should we talk about? Can we talk about the opening scene before we get too yes. far? Because that was actually really mm-hmm. interesting. Like I will was, say, yeah. they they do a great job on opening scenes for these mm-hmm. movies because yeah. like I think this is one of the better written in yeah. the beginning. I like the pacing much better. I like mm-hmm. the setup and the character, which is I think what makes the ending all the more kind of jarring. But yeah. yeah. And so, like, it is a very familiar scene we we will see a lot in Greek myth where it's – what's so interesting is, like, every Greek would know you would never murder someone in a temple, and yet it happens in myth 
all the time. So mm-hmm. uh, it just opens up with Jason being put on the lap of Hera and the sister begging for her life. And he's like, mm, nope, stab. And like, ooh, that was fast. We got to the stabbies real quick. And then Harris shows up mysteriously in the corner. It's like, I wouldn't do that if I were you. <laughs> I do want to actually dwell a little bit on Hera because an, an interesting thing about the Jason myth is that he, Hera, this is one of the few stories where Hera is a sort of, a, dare I say, like positive force or she's helpful. Yeah. Yep. Whereas in many myths, she's sort of vindictive or violent or angry or something like that but in this one she's actively helping the hero and it's very rare even in in our modern sort of cinema landscape where Hera is very often the villain of of a reception work or maybe or a maybe not a villain but a sort of antagonist and I'd be really curious to know if that is an early edition or if that is a late tradition like because Jason as a hero I I think really is coming out of that period of discussing the tragic flaws of heroes that came from the plays of the fifth century. And this is something we talk about in class all the time is Hera's always being depicted as like the worst example of a wife in a happy, like in a marriage. And it's that she's being worshiped for this. This is what you go to the temple and you pray to her for. So like how, what other stories are around there about Hera and is it, that hard to believe that she would in fact sponsor other heroes that the in the way that Athena does? Or is this a late addition because you also get things like Atalanta was on the Argo. Like you have more heroines. You have Medea. Um, whether or not you think she's a good or bad character, she's very powerful and involved in the storyline. And I I'm so she's curious. A heroine in my heart. Yeah, mine too. <laughs> I so like I'm just so curious is like, is this actually because it's coming later, it is a maybe a broader look of the kind of stories that were being told throughout Greece? Or is it just part of this late tradition that comes out of the tragedies? So I, I'm, that was Dia found her pig, which I was afraid because I hit her bone and she knows how to mess with me. So I'm going to grab the pig. That was my thought. Ponder. (laughs) Well, I love seeing Hera as a good character. It's fun to have like a different patron or sponsor you know it's like it's not Zeus and it's not Athena so it's like somebody different who has this very like maternal aspect to them in so many of her like different versions Hera can be extremely maternal and I think that that's fun to see her see that force being used in a really really good way as like I'm trying so hard to help this hero and all of these you know, people on this boat, but I'm like, you know, I'm being held back. I can only do it five times, which he went through those five helpful guesses, like really quickly. It was like, oh man, you're going to need a whole lot more help. (laughs) Yeah. Two things I really liked was I I liked the the dynamic of like Hera and Zeus sort of playing chess and Mm -hmm. the sort of the sense that I got that Hera was kind of playing a longer game and and was going to win. That was like that she was making the clever moves or she knows how to work Zeus. Who is, you know, for all the things that Zeus is, I say Byron, he's usually a pretty simple creature. Yeah. 
usually. But I did really like that conceit of Hera being like, I can only help you five times. Although to Eli's thing, I think that would have been a, in a in a different screenplay or a modern adaptation. I would have maybe kept that version of like, you only get five times the help. And then that creates a tension of like, mm-hmm. do I use my wish on this? And because right. I, I really like that because it one, it sets up rules. It sets up stakes. Mm-hmm. For the narrative, for the audience who knows like, oh, like oh, if Jason's going to use a wish, they're like, should he use that? Or later, you know, maybe he uses one sort of poorly or later on he, he's in a situation where he should have used one or he, he would, there would have been a perfect opportunity to use one, but he's out of wishes for yeah. lack of a better word. Yeah. Well, they kind of uh, did that by like, oh, I pushed the one guy in the water for you. So that counts apparently because <laughs> when he, Jason found out he was down to four, he's like. I don't think that's fair, but okay. <laughs> well, it's like I was counting. Was he counting? I don't know. I don't know. Well, but I again to some of the cl- I really liked Tara and Zeus because there was that clever. Um, there's things you want to know. It's like first this, and the second this, and Zeus is like, "That's two questions." She's like, "Yes," and I'll answer only one. <laughs> and, but he gets. But it. she had it both ways because yeah. the question it was like, "Does it exist, and where can I find it?" And she's like, "I'll let me. It's it's over. It's like go this way." Yeah. <laughs> it's so like, so I it does that. exist. <laughs> yeah. So it's like so he got kind of a freebie back, but. I will say that I thought what was most interesting throughout this was Jason's relationship with not just Hera, but the gods in general. Mm-hmm. And it was mm. being reflective, I think, about philosophers of the time of really just thinking about how much of their world is shaped by supernatural forces versus this more like new rational approach and trying to find natural causes and things like that. So I thought that was really interesting. And they were hinting at it. That like at some point in time the gods aren't going to be necessary in these stories yeah. anymore. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask about that because I also made a note of that. The two things of one is the atheism that Jason expresses mm-hmm. compared to say Perseus twenty years later, who just sort of goes along in stride without you know he just sort of takes everything in stride. But Jason is originally pretty an- antagonistic to the gods, where he's like, we don't need the gods, and then at some point I think Zeus that speech Christie. You were saying where Zeus alludes to an era where people aren't going to need the gods. And I I wanted to know your, your thoughts on that reading. Well, one, I wanted to know your thoughts on sort of Jason's atheism. And then two, on that reading, because I had a thought about that reading and I wanted to run it by you too. I, I really liked that sort of facet that gave Jason more of a personality that his sort of just like reaction and sort of rebellion rebellion almost to the god's help like in the beginning where he's like well i'll give you a ship and i'll give you the best crew and he's like i can get a ship by myself like i don't need you to do this for me he's like those are things i can do by myself like what i need from you is things that i can't do by myself i think that's such a fascinating way for a hero to interact with a divine being and i think it shows so much of his ambition or you know like goals or personality that we have we did not get in perseus at all as as you guys have said and so i think it definitely gave jason more of a a character but i feel like it doesn't like get to the end it doesn't really go anywhere because we don't get to the end of the story yeah and i was thinking back to myths in general and Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, the gods are interfering left and right, like all the time. But the later you get, they they really kind of only throw out a freebie here and there. And there really does seem to be this move away from like, 
Athena flies down, stops Achilles from making an unwise decision by stabbing okay. Agamemnon, which I argue would have been a wise decision in that moment. Great. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, yeah, I'm trying to decide if that is, again, reflective of the source material itself, where the Greeks have already been moving in that direction, or if it, I can't say enough of what's happening in the 1960s, that's well before my time. It's doubly interesting because do you know who wrote the screenplay for this movie? Mm -mm. It was our friend Beverly Cross, Alan Beverly Cross, who wrote the screenplay for Clash of the Titans, same screenwriter. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting that there are these themes in this 1963 movie that, that are sort of interesting for a couple reasons, but one, because they're not present in the 1980, 1981 Clash of the Titans, but they are present in the 2010 Clash of the Titans, where there is this narrative of Perseus being like, I hate the gods, I don't want their gifts, I don't want their help. Although I think in that movie, it equally is sort of not satisfying because that movie yes. kind of changes its uh, mind part mm -hmm. of the way through the movie in inexplicably, which we talked about already, where that movie kind of never really follows through on that idea probably because it, it's at conflict with itself where it wants to have a sort of big triumphant ending, but like that doesn't necessarily jive with like telling Zeus to thumb it. Yeah. <laughs> so and what are you going to do? So it's like unsatisfying in, in that film, I think even more so. Mm -hmm. But the thought I wanted to pick your brains on was about how Zeus kind of alludes to like one day people aren't going to need us anymore and by us i sort of read that as like greek paganism mm -hmm. and i was like is this a foreshadowing is this a kind of christian determinism oh, that we talked about yeah. in the other sword and sandal films that kind of are like inevitably the new hot truth that is mr jc right is gonna sweep the land i'm talking about it like it's beatles mania <laughs> well now that you say that i remember that they very specifically say like the Greek gods are cruel. Like they, mm -hmm. they really use the term like Greek gods when they're mm -hmm. sort of spouting any sort of anti-god or atheistic comments. It's very much like we don't need the Greek gods. Yeah, um, that, that's, that, that's the worship of a bygone era where men yeah. were, you know, primitive. Yeah, so that's interesting, and I did not catch that. I mean, I, like, I heard it, but I, I didn't connect it to any sort of that, like, Christian determinism, which it probably is, truthfully, yeah. I wonder if there's an element, too, of just the difficulty of, like, Greek gods or anthropomorphic gods, but trying to get... A, a sense of what a god is compared to a mortal has always been really hard to pull off, especially in live action form, because in this film, it's like they appear and a magical heart plays, like almost how you would an angel and people struggle with that too. And so you can look at Troy, for example, like that was a really interesting decision where it's like you had gods left and right interfering. They're like, nope, we're going to remove them completely, but treat them like an actual religious belief that is influencing mm -hmm. people's actions, but it is just actions based on a belief, not on actions interfering with the action. And that's why I like the animation, because it's a lot easier to like, all right, we've yeah. got harps, we've got accents, we've got people looking bigger and smaller than other people. What else can we do to just mm -hmm. put them all in gold? <laughs> yeah, it, it, is, it is a trick. And I think this is one of the things where it like, this actually, to bring, I want to bring it back. I'm seeing all the connections. My mind is going like the movie uh, Limitless um, or, or the Zach Galifianakis meme where it's like all the math. Because in the documentary I watched about Harryhausen, he mentions that to tell 
mythology and fantasy, particularly animation. And then he's particularly talking about like stop motion animation is the medium because you can create these things you can't do with just conventional cinema or just live action cinema. And like, you know, you can have a makeup artist change someone's face, like kind of like Star Trek where all the aliens in Star Trek are just people, but with like, they got a little nose ridge or their ears are different or they got spikes or their skin is different or whatever. But with animation and like in this animation, you can have sort of very inhuman things or very unreal and very fantastic things. You could have a centaur. And and Harryhausen himself spoke that he, when he did the Voyage of Sinbad, there's a cyclops in that movie. And he did, he wanted to make sure that uh, he made the Cyclops sort of as non-human as possible, where like he gives it goat legs and three fingers and things like that. So that way, because that way people are absolutely sure that like this isn't just a guy in a suit like mm-hmm. in the Godzilla movies or something like that. Like and there are older Hollywood movies that did this, too, where the monster was just a dude in a suit. And it's like, no, it's not a dude in a suit. Like it's something else. And that's what's so amazing. And that lends itself to that fantasy. And I think this is why we talked about why he gives Medusa the snaky body, because it's like we can. And we don't have to have a person. We can make it as a non-person as as we want. Mm-hmm. And so fantasy, and, and Harryhausen talks sort of like that, like animation is the medium for fantasy and mythology and things like that. And I think even today, like sort of 2D animation or even 3D animation is really kind of maybe the best medium mm-hmm. for these kinds of stories because you can you can just have the things there and you can sort of accept it mm-hmm. as a right. viewer. And just be like, yeah, yeah, of course there would be a... Um, two-headed dog or a a snake woman or a giant bronze man or whatever yeah yeah and i think maybe i'm thinking of the two the 2010 clash of the titans that it sort of tried to go like very dark and maybe like grody sort of it had like that it was 2010 the the dark knight was the biggest thing exactly i was like it's the it's the dark knight of every like adventure story it's like oh it has to be dark and creepy and i think so much about myth can actually be really funny and i think there were funny moments in this story and Mm -hmm. it's not dark and grody and grimy speaking of a uh a funny moment I think there's a good segue to Heracles. Yay. <laughs> Who is exactly one of those per- he is a Her- Heracles is is he's legion in in mythology because he's he's serious, he's philosophical, he's comical, he's broad, you know, he's brutish, he's civilized, he's, you know, he's the whole range of everything yeah. you need him to be. Much yeah. like Batman. Exactly. You could do whatever you want with Heracles or Hercules or however you want to talk about him. He can be anywhere, he can do anything. And I think they specifically cast Nigel Green to be like not like the biggest, like most muscular. Yeah, not not Steve like, Reeves, who was yeah. the Italian Hercules, who was he like, he was the rock before the rock. <laughs> exactly. Decided yeah. to become the biggest person in the world. Yeah. And I like that Nigel Green was like maybe a little bit older, like he had kind of some gray in his beard and but they were like almost physical comedy running around on that island they like chase the goat they like (laughs) fall over each other and it's like you're rooting for these people and you feel really sad when spoilers when hylas disappears and it's like and hercules also feels sad and so i think that was that was so wonderful i love hercules (laughs) did you guys notice that um the isle of bronze is shot on the amalfi coast which the next big movie that does that is wonder woman yeah. Oh, yeah. That that um oh. that like arch. Yep. That, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. yeah. The scene. Yeah. The scene. Tell us. That's where the one they have the fight on the beach in Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. And then I know we'll come back. It's like they're at Pystum again. I'm like, but yep. They, I was going to say it's more like they were there before. But after, and so they really <laughs> like Pystum. And so just to, I wanted to throw a weird movie fact out there. Because, you know, you start to wonder why why are they not shooting any of these in Greece? And that is because the Greeks don't allow people to do professional filming or photography on any of their sites. The exception being Nia Vardellis. She did My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Yeah. She oh, is yeah. Greek. Yeah. So Nia Vardellis is one of the only people to have gotten professional film done in Greece in recent times, and it's called My Life in Ruins. I watched My Life in Ruins. I'm like, oh my God, that's the Acropolis. And they end in Plaka. They end in Plaka with the Acropolis in the background. And it's just like, you don't get to see that in movies because there's this weird law that is on the books in Greece that they don't allow professional photography or filming there. And so you have to go to Sicily to do all of this. Um, But it's like, Greece, please change. I want to see more movies with your beautiful things in the background and you can make more money. So win. Um, But yeah, so Amalfi Coast, we're back at Paestum. Good villain. I will never get bored of Italy being a representation of the ancient Greek world because there are some cool stuff there. But uh, those were my two fun facts to go along with today's little discussion. I got us off track again, too. We were talking about Heracles and the playfulness of him. And I like that you can't actually peg down any single quality in terms of... I always think of Heracles as slightly the dumb jock who occasionally has a good idea. Yeah. Kind of like a Channing Tatum. I love Channing Tatum, so <laughs> forgive me. But... No, he yeah, would be a perfect... Heracles I can really see that yeah I think that would work because he has the comedic range as we have already talked about on the show (laughs) funnily one of the fun things about the rock although I think in some ways he's a great Heracles because he has a little Mm -hmm. bit of like lightheartedness and comedy chops and and also he's the a giant man Mm -hmm. (laughs) he's the most yoked person to ever exist but one of the things about the rock that i think actually would make a poor heracles is that the rock can't like contractually can't lose on screen Mm -hmm. like there are clauses in his contract for like fast and the furious where like he can't lose a fight and things like that like he has a very very cultivated on-screen image that he maintains like he has a he has a particular brand that is the rock like you would you would be less likely to get a scene where the rock trips over himself as he tries to catch goats or like Right. You know, a Hercules move like gets too drunk at dinner and has to be carried out. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> which would be like a very Heracles thing to do. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, yeah. It's so Nigel Green. And this, I think also Heracles in this movie, Hercules, I don't even know what we should call him. I go with Heracles. I can't help it. Yeah. But he 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 also, I think, kind of exemplifies one of the potential traps of the Jason myth is that this, its narrative is a little... It's like it's hard to adapt for things like a character as big as Hercules, I'll mm-hmm. say, leaves so early into the story. You know, he comes on and he actually he does sort of he's involved in a few sort of adventures with the Argo, but he eventually leaves early. And then that also leads me to the other thought where, I mean, this is 1963, but this scene is a big departure from the sort of myth as we as we know it it's a little bit of um what's the trope bury your gaze hide your gaze mm. where in the myth the relationship between heracles and hylas is more amorous mm-hmm. we can say and hylas is actually kidnapped by nymphs and as opposed to crushed by a giant bronze man <laughs> and heracles goes off wandering for a, a man he loves 
And in this movie, they plucked Talos from a different point because Talos in the myth isn't until the return journey. And it's actually Medea who takes care of him. This leads me to another thought, <laughs> but we've moved Talos up in the in the order. Had Jason take care of Talos, and then Talos is also the one that that crushes Hylas rather than having Hylas be kidnapped by the nymphs. Yeah, and that's why I'm, like the Argo story and how long it's been around has been so interesting because it it does really feel like everyone wants to get their local hero in on the story, but no one's other than Jason is there for its entirety. And I've, Jason is a, from Thessaly, right? So yeah, Yolkus, yeah, is yeah. A... So this is, and to be honest, it's like we don't hear a lot of stories from Thessaly in particular, or heroes from there. So I just have so many questions about the source material all the time, and so like <laughs> I'm wondering if some of this is just a difference in local like and I think that's cool because mm -hmm. we do get the Athenian and Peloponnesian version of Greek myth most of the time. So getting something from a different region and getting a taste for like, well, how did they think about their heroes and the traits they wanted to see in heroes and being sharing some culture contact with these other groups as being reflected in, oh, well, Heracles comes and shows up for a while and does this thing and then he's gone. And mm -hmm. and being kind of a reflective of the cultures at the time of we're all Greeks, but we're we're not all the same, so. Yeah, we're not all in the same boat. Uh... <laughs> well done. <laughs> well, yeah, I feel like that's like it's an ensemble cast. And I feel like that's it's so much fun. And it is like the Avengers, right? I think you mentioned yep. that earlier. It's like, yeah, bro, and... do you even Argo? <laughs> yeah. Oh, and this also, with the exception of Heracles, well, I guess we get Castor and Pollux or Castor yeah. and Polydeus in this film, but they are not terribly distinguished from the rest of the crew no. uh, in a way that they might have been in other myths. I mean, Castor and Pollux are another great example of like two very specific heroes and they have their own mythological tradition. Yeah, particularly in Rome, the Romans loved those guys, mm -hmm. but they're there. But we, we were also missing sort of there's other big names uh, that are attached to get attached to the Argo at various points in time, like Atalanta. Mm -hmm. uh, she's not she's not here like Orpheus, yeah. uh, who's also you know can sort of conspicuously absent and yeah and this kind of because i mean i think jason in in a way is like just in the film context jason is kind of like another sinbad he's just sort of this adventure man on an you know on an adventure here to to kill some monsters because also it's very interesting that jason is the one who defeats talos by by you know unscrewing the his lifeblood in his heel mm -hmm. whereas in in apollonius and and other sources it's medea is the one who effectively she conjures like a tornado to destroy, you know, she uses her magic to kill, to destroy Talos, uh, who's guarding Crete, which actually I will make a plug. There's a book I'm reading right now by, by Adrian Mayer that's called Gods and Robots, and it's all about sort of ideas of automated or sort of synthetic life in Greek mythology. And it's interesting, but there's a lot on Talos in that as kind of one of the first robots, or at least as is conceived in sort of Western literature. So yeah, so there's the Talos scene, and then should we jump to the harp? Should we get to the harpies? Yeah. I was kind of bored with the harpies, guys. Is that just me? I like that was actually central to the story. Like that was one of the parts I was most familiar with. And I think Jeremy Swiss had retweeted, and I can't remember the tweet, but there is this really interesting article that came out a few years ago 
uh, at like looking at descriptions of the harpies and it's like, are they menstruating monsters based on the descriptions <laughs> they have? So it's like that was going on in the back of my mind. And then the other thing going on was my favorite part was them capturing the harpies because they're on top of the Pi- the temple at Pistim. I'm like, that part was cool. The actual fight. I would say I can't believe they were allowed to do that. I know. Um, I was like, what's what's going on in Italy? Like that that's that's when you know the lead archaeologists and they're like. Yeah, we can do that because yeah, sure. I, I know students who have been on top of the Parthenon on the Acropolis. So, like, it's a thing that archaeologists get away with sometimes. So, yeah, somebody had a friend. I've been like behind the guardrails, but I've never been on top of one of the temples. Well, That's they would have had to level. like put a ladder up to get them up there. Like, there's no way for them to climb. And that, I think that's the Temple of Hera 1. I think in class. Did you go back and. and (laughs) I did. I went back and looked because it's burned into my brain. (laughs) But no, the Temple of Hera, the first one, the older one from the fifth century, has um, less of the pediment remaining. And so they could actually stand on that sort of space all the way around. But oh my God, that was wild. (laughs) Yeah, I was having fun. It's like, that's life goals right there. I just want (laughs) to climb on top of a giant temple. I don't even know which one, just any of them. I think that would be really fun. <laughs> and then, mm-hmm. but it's like a whole scene of like, we're going to capture the harpies. I'm like, this is a brilliant use of like an actual space for yeah. making this part of the movie really exciting. Also, a solution because I would say among the other conspicuous absences are Colin's personal favorite members of the Argo, who are the Boreads, who are the, the sons of Boreas, the North Wind, and they're, mm-hmm. they're these, two, these two twins, Zeets and Calais. They just chase after the harpies because they're winged. And they they free Phineas from the harpies. Although this is, I think, a good this was a this was an instance of the hero actually being clever. We kind of joked about mm-hmm. how Perseus is supposed to be a clever hero, but is he the jury's out on how clever he is. But Jason <laughs> actually comes up with like a pretty good plan. A huge net also. Huge net. <laughs> I was just like looking farther down the story. I was just like, I know where we're supposed to end up. And it was like, we're taking so much time with these harpies that I just kind of got tired of it. I don't know. I'm feeling like I'm a stick in the mud here and you guys love the yeah, harpies. Why, why do you hate <laughs> monsters and movies and, and people who like things? Well, and like the whole reason we have to go here is like, well, first it's in the Argonautica. So that's why we have to go here. Sure, but the exactly. device in the movie is like, we've already used up all of the wishes to Hera. Already. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so now we need an alternative. It's like you haven't even gotten to Colchis yet. Right. Like, things are going to go wrong. We haven't commented it yet, but like I personally love the moment where like there's some guys, they're rowing on the boat and they see Jason having a conversation with the hair. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. And they're and they're like, guys, I think he's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't we didn't know. even talk about the Hera figurine that actually creeped me out a little. Bit. I didn't like it. Oh, I didn't like it. I didn't like that its eyelids moved. I didn't like that it was so big. That it has to whisper to you your secrets to get you. Ah, no. It's like no wonder Jason looks so crazy to everyone else right now. Just speaking of Jason, uh, I want to get this fun fact out there before we forget it. But that's not it. So he's played by Todd Armstrong, but that's not Todd Armstrong's voice. Or Todd Armstrong is an American actor, and he's dubbed over by Tim Turner, who was a pretty well-known actor on like BBC Radio and other, among other things. Same with Nancy Kovac, who played Medea, where the, the, they were dubbed over by British voice actors. 
That's so weird to me. It's like this person is speaking the same language. Like, what, are we just we're dubbing over them for voice recognition? I don't know what Todd Armstrong's voice sounds like, so I... And it's not an unusual practice in Hollywood. I know that a lot of movies would do that for... That had songs in it as well. So, like, in terms of singing, that's not a weird thing. Singing's one thing. The singing makes sense to me. Like, in uh, My Fair Lady, like, the... What's her name? I can blank. Eliza Doolittle. Yes, Audrey Hepburn. Eliza Doolittle. Thank you for giving me both the character (laughs) and the actress. You guys are fantastic. (laughs) Like, she doesn't sing those songs. She's dubbed for her singing voice. But, Mm -hmm. like, that that makes more sense to me than just all of the things that come out of your mouth are going to be spoken by somebody else. It kind of speaks to this convention that's still going on of, you know, how do we render the, you know, because obviously when we depict the ancient world, they're not speaking, you know, Attic Greek or, or sure. classical Latin or, or whatever. And so how do we render their accents? And the default is to usually go with some kind of like British or faux British mm-hmm. accent. And I think that just speaks volumes to like sort of current sort of linguistic and socio constructions of identity and status and, and culture. And, you know, when you want to add like a sort of air of, I think maybe like a little bit of distance and sophistication, mm-hmm. you know, British is the accent to go to. Like you, you would never see a sword and sandal where somebody comes in and is like, howdy y'all. <laughs> I think Australian heist. would have been fun. Get, yeah. get an Australian yeah. accent in there for Heracles. I don't know why that works mm-hmm. for me, but it does. Ooh, that does. I see that. So in the 2004 Oliver Stone Alexander, so Colin Farrell, you know, he just has an Irish accent. And then it sort of seemed like they cast around him. And then Val Kilmer does like a weird Irish accent. Angelina Jolie is doing something else entirely. Something else. And, you know, and there maybe is something to like I read, I think Daniel Mendelson wrote, like maybe it's the idea that like, I think because like Aristotle is Christopher Plummer. And if Mm -hmm. like the Athenians have like a posh accent or something then the macedonians might have like an irish or a scottish brogue or something going on like to map on more or less like those sort of accent that Mm -hmm. accent schema but but yeah i think this kind of just speaks to this cultural linguistic sort of ideas about like what certain people should sound like yeah someday we might actually get a greek actor to play a greek hero (laughs) who knows (laughs) like what Blood of Zeus. We got a. Uh, we got. Yeah. There's a bunch of Greek actors. Right. That, uh, yeah. It's like voice actors. I think that's much more acceptable. But mm-hmm. in terms of, have you played the Assassin's Creed Odyssey? That one. I have not played it. I've watched mm-hmm. some Twitches of it. They have modern Greek accents mm-hmm. for the most part, and they because they say things like Parodotus, they call them Erodotus mm-hmm. and things Aww, like that. I love that. There are some other ones that I'm trying to remember. Alcibiades and things like that. Oh, my boy. I never like I never learned to say Thessalonica because <laughs> I learned modern Greek while I was studying abroad there. And so it's like it's Thessaloniki. You don't. Mm-hmm. What is Thessalonica? That is not a thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, Epidavros, things like that, where like we would say Epidaurus. Oh, I love it. That's fun. No, I mean, I feel like I like the intentionality behind sort of trying to depict the way that somebody speaks in a certain way. But I just find it so a sign of the times, I guess, for the for the 60s -hmm. and dubbing people. But I would love to also have a story where two main characters can't communicate. I feel like this is something I've brought up before. It's like, did all of these people speak the same language? It's like she's talking to 
uh, Medea is talking to Jason is like, well, you're from Thessaly. That's the other side of the world. It's like, how are you both speaking the same language if you live mm-hmm. on the other side of the world? Yeah, because I think that would be a really fun and realistic challenge for main characters to overcome is how to communicate with each other. I wonder if that's a, a reflection of the fact that films are produced in Hollywood and we have this strange idea that English is the only language spoken in this country because right. in so in my class today, uh, we were just wrapping up the Spanish conquest led by Cortez and there's this amazing Amazon Prime show that I can't even watch in the US is only released in Mexico and Spain. So I had to I'm not going to say what I had to do, but I got a hold of the first episode. No, no, no. You can say that you you blackmailed Jeff Bezos and <laughs> held him at knife I don't point. know what I have over him, but apparently <laughs> I pulled it off. But free, free, free tickets on a blue horizon or whatever the hell his spaceship is called. But um, <laughs> what was so amazing about this show uh, called Hernan is that the Spaniards are speaking Spanish. And they, the first episode is from Dona Marina's perspective, who was his translator. And she had been part of the Mexica people. She spoke Nahuatl as a child, was sold into slavery, and learned the Mayan language. So you are, we're literally watching this episode. Everything is subtitled. But there's three different languages being spoken to bring up the fact that like Dona Marina was so important because she could speak both the Mayan, which is... Cortez's only other translator could do Mayan to Spanish. And then she could also speak this Mexico language of Nahuatl. And like three completely different languages in one episode sounding amazing. And I'm sitting here like, I read subtitles all the time. This is no problem for me. And I'm realizing that I'm looking at some of my students is like, you don't watch old foreign films, nor do you watch anime, do you? So... practice it's great but like it can be done like i thought it was amazing how they showed that body language can communicate ideas Mm -hmm. when language is a barrier to some extent and like how important it is to navigate between languages so to elijah's point that like why can't we show that in these stories that we're telling i think we could you're just not going to have as big an audience for it unfortunately in my heist movie there will be various languages. <laughs> but th- this is a thing that even we ask questions about in ancient sources, because particularly in, well, in a lot of things, but like in the Iliad, for example, the Trojans and the Greeks are not terribly differentiated from one another in terms of like their customs or their, like there's not really any mention of them having particularly different cultures or languages or anything like that. Although in later depictions and art, like the, the Trojans are very much sort of associated with Persians mm-hmm. who would have spoken a different language than, than the Greeks or, or like in a Caesar's commentaries, for example, there's not a lot of mention of like translators or things like that. Like right. German kings and chieftains will, or, or Gallic chieftains will come up to Caesar and just speak in Latin and right. like have like Latin idioms and, and like, and like <laughs> refer to things in like ways that a Roman would and like sort of Latin turns of phrase. Like there is very much, I mean, we could call this, you know, interpretatio Romana or something like, or interpretatio Graeca to like get fancy with our terminology, but just kind of like funneling everything through the particular lens of, that one respective culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is Interpretatio, although this isn't actually a Hollywood film, but Interpretatio. Harry Harley, Housen. Yeah, Harry Housen. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's, yeah. Interpretatio Harry Housen. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess it's also extremely reflective of just the 60s and the time that it's in where I feel like, yeah, every every sort of piece of media is very reflective and, and narrowed down to the 
the American version or the um, Americo English uh the word well, yeah. yeah well it's <laughs> that thing where if you are going to be a newscaster you are taught the midwest right dialect. yeah mm-hmm. yeah the non-specific the most- very flat non-specific mm-hmm. exactly mm-hmm. yeah this is a sticking point in a movie that i will fly off on a rant about at a given and we've it's a movie <laughs> we've talked about and oh, i no. had tried to rein it in can't wait. Which is Atlantis, where there's a scene where the Atlanteans basically explain that that because they speak the original language, they therefore know all languages, and, which like bugged me when I was 10 and bugs me to this day. And I've, I've spent the last 20 years grinding, you know, uh, gr- grinding away at this issue <laughs> of how much that bugged me. Like if they hadn't said anything, I wouldn't really have bothered too much about it. But like, it's like by trying to cover it up, like it's mm-hmm. like I, I'm trying like mm-hmm. and like when you're trying to re- make a repair, but the repair just draws more attention to the original damage. <laughs> like when you try to, I don't know, like when you try to hide a stain and you end up just making it way worse or like mm-hmm. you're trying to pop a pimple and now you just have a huge bleeding thing on your face. <laughs> Yeah, I yes. yeah, I think it's one of those things that we always want to believe we can understand what is being said to us. Like, I know I've had dreams where I'm like, "Oh, Italian is being spoken," and I understand it perfectly. And I'm like, "That's that's not my lived experience." But boy, can I believe it! I also believe I can breathe underwater um, when I dream. So, like, I've definitely had swimming yeah. underwater, and I'm like, "Oh, good, it's convenient. I can breathe water." <laughs> And you just well, yeah. kind of question. Convenient. It. Like, here we go. Convenient is I is I feel like a good word. It's like, well, if the story needs us to do this, it's convenient for these characters to be able to communicate. Convenient that Medea just happened to survive this. The clashing boat rocks. Wreck. Are we gonna do the clashing rocks before we get to Medea? We're like almost to Medea. We gotta like go boom boom Gosh. with the rocks first. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really have much to say about the rocks other than that just they smash together. They smash together. Yeah. I That's thought it looked idea. pretty decent. Mm-hmm. That was and actually then, really fun. I did yeah. like the, the little thing. Medea. Finally. Medea. Enter Medea. Played by Nancy Kovac and voiced by Eva Hayden. They find her in the most ridiculous way. Like she was just on the other ship and like. They say nothing. They say there were two other survivors, right? But we see nothing from them. They're inconsequential. They're inconsequential. They weren't a hot chick. So Obviously, they were not a hot chick. <laughs> and like, is it insinuated that she was trying to escape her? That's what I, was I thought. just about to ask I, this. That's what I thought. Yeah. That's what I jumped to that she was trying to escape and then was like, yeah, that failed. But she says her exp- the given explanation mm-hmm. is that she was just making an offering. To, to the gods of the clashing rocks. And I'm like, that isn't checking out. I don't understand. And well, it's, it's like, oh, it's foreign gods. But I don't know. So yeah, I don't know if we're supposed her, to read it. Yeah, like so much motivation to actually help Jason if she was somehow unhappy or if she was somehow trying to escape previously. But they mm-hmm. don't connect those dots. She's just the priestess. Like, is she's not even the princess, right? Like, they don't even say... No, she's just the priestess of, of Hecate. Yeah, so she's not even part of the royal house so like why is she even important (laughs) (laughs) and she is an actual princess of hecate in in the argonautica Mm -hmm. so 
and she's uh she's the granddaughter of Helios or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yes, because Colchis mm-hmm. is the son of Helios. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So she's like a major figure in their city, but she just seems to be like standing on the sidelines. This movie also had another sort of feature of the sword and sandal genre that I'd forgotten. And I was like, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that later movies sort of left this behind, but I was like, oh, yes, the dancing girls in the palace. Yeah. <laughs> they <laughs> even had thing. them earlier in they the kid. They were yeah, like just I, I randomly him, like dancing girls on like, the ground. I was like, what is happening? <laughs> Peleus's court just, or not even court, his camp just has like dancers doing their thing. What a weird gig that must be. Bizarre. I, I guess pottery would suggest maybe. I don't know. But like, uh, I don't know. It was just like, what are you, what are you, what are we doing? It's like midday. We're all just well, like sitting like- around outside watching people dance. What? <laughs> And at Colchis, it was like actual, like that was ballet. Yeah. Like that was some legit dancing happening. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. do we have a deal with just the local ballet company? And we're like, I mean, let's do it's, it. It's, it's I, a hallmark of the genre. I mean, you'll see it in Quo Vadis, You see it in Ben-Hur. You, I mean, you see it in all of the it's Spartacus. Yeah. Funny thing happened on the way to the forum does it too. Just like, <laughs> you know, and it's. In a funny way, hopefully. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, the other thing that kind of bums me out about it is like, it's the only time you ever see actors of color in the movie yeah um Mm -hmm. yeah well and it's it serves no purpose like they're not trying to no it's to to titillate that's yeah that's that's the entire thing i feel like that's medea's entire character in this movie is just to look pretty she does almost no sorcery so like in in the argonautica she's like a very accomplished I don't know. She's more like Uh, magician, like like witch is sort of a bad word to use. Like you don't want to really be called a witch, but she practices. Yeah, sorceress. She practices magic. She is really good at it. And she Mm -hmm. doesn't do anything in the movie. (laughs) I was waiting for her to like bring up something awesome. And it just she just stands there. And this, this was also a good opportunity to like have a little more fun with the gods too because in the Argonautica, and it's like I was blinking for a moment. It's like, is she struck by an arrow from Eros? I'm like, no, she's just struck by an arrow to show that the Golden Fleece is magical and heal mm-hmm. you. In, and this is a whole another thing I wrote in my graduate comp exams about, but there's a sort of one of the famous scenes in the Argonautica is Hera, or they set up, I forget exactly, Hera has a big part in it, but they set up basically this fog cloud for when Jason enters Colchis and that he's sort of like, he's like shrouded in this mist. And then there's a whole scene where basically Hera goes to Aphrodite and convinces Aphrodite to have her son Eros shoot Medea to, to help Jason out. And there's this whole scene where they go to, to Eros and he's like a kid. He's like a little kid playing with his ball. And they promise him like, they promise him, I think, like the toys that Zeus used to play with yeah. when he was a baby. And, mm-hmm. and then Eros gets up and, and does it. And there's also a very, there's a, there's an elaborate sort of poetic imagery about the way the air hits Medea and like the fire in her heart, because this comes up later in Virgil when Dido gets, falls Mm -hmm. in love with Aeneas Mm -hmm. and there's like a fire that burns in her like inner being. And that comes straight out of the Argonautica, but I'm going on a philology rant. No, but like, I remember translating that, like, and I'm not a philologist, but it's like that part is like very much burned into my brain of like. First of all, much like love was burned into Medea's heart. Much like love was burned into Medea's heart. But it's like you have to learn the vocabulary terms for like all of these obscure little toys, which drove me mm-hmm. insane. But yeah, it's it's like a very specific 
moment. And like, I even remember that. And I'm not the philologist. Yeah. And you don't put it in the movie. It's like you have all the gods. And again, it's like, why is no like, if you're going to force a love story, just do it the Greek way and have arrows shoot them with an arrow. That would like, make more you're sense. Force romance on us. Yeah. Someone better get shot by an arrow and it better be a metaphorical sets fire to your heart arrow, not a legit arrow that needs to uh, be healed. Yeah. So. Well, because it just seems like everybody turns on a dime. Like Medea and Jason exchange some like lingering looks and then suddenly she's like, I'm going to betray everyone I know for you. And yep. I met you yesterday. <laughs> yeah, she's, she, she kind of looks, she's like, yeah, focus. <laughs> Which again would have made sense if she was running away for some exactly. reason, which is like the weird sense you got of like, why is she on this show? There's a weird trying? sense I get from Colchis too, where it's set up as this sort of maybe not bad place, but there's a couple lines where Aedes basically says, like, I need to defend the tree. The tree gives Colchis, or not the tree, the fleece. I defend the fleece. The fleece gives Colchis life. If somebody takes the fleece, this city will die. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I can't let anyone take the fleece. Which one is like, well, this turns us into this like colonizing narrative. And there's a bit where the on the Argo, the Argonauts are like, we've got the best fighting force in Greece. Why don't we just attack Colchis and take the fleece? Which seems like also, I mean, even like a bit, they're being a bit generous. Like there's 50 of them. Like, <laughs> yeah, <kind> exactly. Of, <laughs> I don't know if they're take a whole city kind of, but which couple of things that come into my brain. But one being actually like, possible early sources of a lot of mythology just going back to like acts of even like piracy and raiding yeah. and um cattle theft is a big motif yeah. in indo-european mythology there's For a lot sure. of people stealing each other's flocks and herds and cattle and cows and things like that <laughs> and even in in ancient sources herodotus basically explains the whole history of conflict between the greeks and the persians as going you know in these he basically rationalizes a bunch of myths of just as a series of essentially bride snatchings mm -hmm. from one side to the other where, you know, a group of sailors were in one town and then they seized the princess and a couple of generations are, you know, a little bit later, some people on the other side stole a princess from the other and then this went on and that, you know, and he names them as, you know, Helen and Medea mm -hmm. and I forget who else, Io maybe. Europa. And that's actually a very common trope in conquest stories overall, because we see this both in the Umayyad uh, takeover of the Iberian Peninsula, and then it gets repeated in the Reconquista of just a virginal girl, and of course, Rome. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is just on a woman's honor. It's like, we have right. no respect for women otherwise, but damn it, if you steal a virginal girl, then the day is over for you, my friend. <laughs> this is the thing you were saying last week where it's like, we are, I, I care about this woman's issue because I have a mother or a daughter or yeah. a yeah. wife, whatever. Like the, the subtext of that being, if I didn't know a woman, I wouldn't care about this or something. Yeah. <laughs> That's basically it. So it's, we, I, I just got to do this story with um, the tyrannicides in Athens and like how mm. that happens. And it's like, <gasps> I got rejected by a boy. Let's insult his sister. And like all hell breaks loose. <laughs> I know it's like Gossip Girl. For, yeah. for those who don't, yeah, there was a tyrant. For those for our listeners, or there was a tyrant in Athens whose son, yeah, Hippias. Yep, yeah. it's mm -hmm. his, his son, Hippias and Hipparchus. Hipparchus is the one who's hitting on Harmodius. 
Yes. Yeah. It's played up as, you know, it, this was the event that led to the downfall of the tyranny, but mm-hmm. the way it is kind of described in sources and the way it played out was it was this weird love triangle that invent, that it culminated in somebody stabbing someone else at a parade, basically. <laughs> at the Panathenaic <laughs> Festival. Yeah. It would be like if, I'm trying to think of like an example, like it would be like if a couple of years ago, uh, Orlando Bloom punched Justin Bieber in the face at a beach in Spain, I think, because of some comments Justin Bieber made about like a mutual ex-girlfriend they both had or something. It would be like if that happened at the Macy's Day Parade. Like that's what happened in Athens. It would be like if like in during mid Macy's Day Parade, Justin Bieber was singing on the float and Orlando Bloom like ran up and stabbed him. Except <laughs> if also like... Orlando Bloom was like the president and yes like... if he, or if yeah if he was also like like Donald Trump Jr. or yeah, whatever yeah that's that's a good and we have to add in the part that like the only reason because they were gonna get both brothers and then when the conspirators panicked because one guy was chatting up one of the tyrants is like the game has been figured out just kill that one and it's just like okay so xoxo Greek gossip. This girl. is another a great discussion. This is, has nothing to do with ancient history or or these movies, but a great synopsis of the Lincoln assassination is that because John Wilkes Booth was a pretty famous actor, but his older brother was a more famous actor. And Seek Semper Tyrannis, the line from Julius Caesar that John Wilkes Booth says when he assassinates Lincoln was made famous by his older brother. And it would literally be like if Liam Hemsworth assassinated the president and said like you should have gone for the head that's like how crazy that thing is that's incredible i had never thought of it that way before and i love it so much so basically long story short so much of history happens due to an insult to a woman apparently is what we're told it's women's fault at the end of the day men just do all this crazy shit except in this story i feel like we didn't see any insult to medea there was no reason for her to do the things that she did and she didn't actually end up doing anything but but yeah there is this weird there's this weird colonizing element to the argo in the story where yeah there's no question like jason's like we got to take the fleece there's no stop to consideration where it's like oh if you take the fleece colchis dies yeah, there's there's no we don't care about these people. There's no scenes of them dying. They like like they're just well, they're all at a party like Aedes like, you know, brings them in and it, like turns very, very quickly into how dare you like we're well, and the, you. We, we get our the key element to this is a character we haven't talked about yet, but it's a castus. Yes. Um, I don't I kind of liked that he was sort of like in the background, yeah. but also he looks a lot like jason like jason just has like facial hair and Acastus has no facial hair <laughs> and so yeah, played they, by gary raymond when they yeah, have the... like their big altercation on the ship and they fight each other it's almost like jason is fighting himself or like a part of himself maybe mm-hmm. more metaphorically and then um yeah Acastus is the one who sort of gives them up i think we're supposed to maybe think that it's medea like the camera keeps panning to her as like did she tell mm-hmm. Aedes something and then no it's a castus and he's the one behind the curtain but like he, I mean, well, he it he's, doesn't he's go kind anywhere. of the nega jason right he's yeah. he's the son of the usurper king right whereas... are they related at all because it always feels like a family affair anyway so they would be cousins that's that what event, i thought right? okay so so the yes. lookalike thing kind of works well i mean also this is yes. jason yeah. we didn't mention this but jason who 
is when he rescues, they call him Pelias, but I'll, I'll, I always say Peleus. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he's taken in by Pelias, and Jason just goes on this rant where he's like, I am the son of the former king, and I'm sworn to kill Pelias. And Pelias is like, interesting. Guess who you're talking to? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I do like that they played that this thing that's been going on of these kings who are doing bad things, but they're trying to get around the bad thing by being clever about Mm it. Mm -hmm. Um, So him being like, before he reveals himself, he's like, tell me more of your great dreams for your kingdom. Once you're in charge of it, it's like, I must bring hope to the people. It's like, yes, yes. You know what would work great for that? That golden fleece you were talking about. Go get that first. (laughs) By the way, say hello to your uncle. Good day. Yeah. Well, it's like, yeah, it's like nothing is resolved. Like the the people that are apparently, you know, suffering under Peleus's rule, apparently, apparently there is suffering. Apparently he's bad. There's no resolving that. We don't even see that. And we're also causing all of this apparent destruction if we're moving the fleece from Colchis to Thessaly. So it has no input or idea or like vision of like the normal everyday person how is this Mm -hmm. impacting like the thessalian farmer we have no idea (laughs) eli no one gives a shit no i know um, (laughs) killed off a bunch of pegasi i'm like yeah yeah do whatever you need to zeus (laughs) that's a problem to tie into another, I think like one of the reasons I think of all of the sword and sandal films from this era, again, where this one is kind of, it's not quite in the same category, but I think my favorite is Spartacus because, well, because it's a, it's the leftist film for the people, but, yes. <laughs> but Spartacus is the one that seems almost, it's particularly and, and maybe even uniquely interested in the lives of regular and like non-elite and like oppressed and and you know it's it's a it's literally a, a proletariat's rise up story yeah, yeah. um but the, that film is interested in where we do have care they don't say any lines but we see them and they become characters in spartacus's sort of army i mean not just his army but his like family that he develops mm-hmm. you know you there's like the old couple and the children mm-hmm. and you know the, the, i think there's a young couple uh and like a girl and the, but you see these people and you get to know them and then you see them die where in a lot of other movies of this era and not just of this era going forward like man of steel there's just kind yeah. of like the regular hoi polloi are well, like, who cares like we're talking about yeah. heroes mm-hmm. i mean in, in a sense that's kind of true to greek myth where regular people factor into greek myth very rarely sure. and even less rarely do they like get to speak or do anything mm. yeah no that's that's exactly right and i think yeah man of steel as we even talked about last week and this sort of mass destruction and like seemingly uncaring just massacre of, like totally innocent civilian bystanders but i think we have that's sort of maybe part of the history that we get is because we don't have a lot of information like material culture or even especially literary evidence of just the regular everyday people and how the big giant events of history really impacted them. So like I'm TAing for a Roman history class right now and it's all of the big civil wars and Caesar versus Pompey and like Augustus coming into his own. And it's like, what is, you know, the random dude living in Campania trying to farm his like little plot, his few hectares, how is all of this affecting him? That's something we don't know a lot of information about, especially on a more like intimate individual level. 
And it's just because like we don't have the information. So that's maybe where a lot of our even history is just we can only focus on the things that we do know. Mm-hmm. So then the stories that we tell out of those history and those myths, you know, follow the big events, the big names, and we we almost can't talk about the little guy, which is sad. And some of it is just like some of those big things going on way over there literally does not have an impact on the day-to-day life of some people. Like, yeah. oh, someone else took over? I'm paying my taxes to them now? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I only care if the taxes go up, so. Right. <laughs> Whoever's well, getting my of- money, my money's not staying with me. Yeah, when all the battles take place in Greece, it's like, well, I live in, you know, Italy, so I guess I guess my farm is fine. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, like, what are the the everyday farmers in Greece think about the Roman Civil War? I'm getting way off topic here, but yeah, the little that's people. why we're archaeologists. We like those questions. I know. I'm like, we go dig there. In my heist movie, there will be little people. <laughs> <laughs> The, the screenplay is starting to feel a little sweaty, Eli. We've got a lot of stuff in here. <laughs> it's it's a heist, but it's also a myth, but it's also a, a think piece on the common man. <laughs> yes. What is your question? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I was just, not just like the small people, but like, I was just going back to the, are we invested in any of these characters at the end of the day? Like even Heracles, who I liked a lot, the kind of cast off line is just like, don't worry, the gods have other labors for him. So like if you have a background in Greek mythology, it's like, all right, he's going to go first murder his family and then go on do some labors. <laughs> uh, so he, he'll be fine. But it's just like, don't think about it. He's not yeah. going to find Hylas. If he does, he's going to have to grieve all by himself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, well. <laughs> Onward. Cool. And like other people die. Like they talk about them being falling into the sea. It's like, yeah, bummer. All right, keep going. Or in the skeleton fight at the end, like the the other or the other people with uh, Jason, they die. They get stabbed. Yeah. Wait, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves because there's one thing I feel like we need to talk about before we get to the skeleton fight, okay. which is I would say is this movie's end. It's the word piece de resistance, yeah. mm. <laughs> but also its end. Is that the Hydra? Yes, that's the Hydra. Well, that's, yeah, the the getting of the Golden Fleece. So Medea drugs the guards and lets Jason and his men escape. And she's like, I'm ride or die now, man I just met. <laughs> They're not even good drugs. She had good drugs. Like, they stayed asleep. Mm-hmm. And, like, they, we don't even, like, see her doing that. They just sort yeah. of say it off screen. I thought they were all like, passed out from being drunk at the party. Right? It's, like, <laughs> never even, like, very clear that it is her. It's just Aedes sort of is like, it must have been Medea then. Yeah, it, this movie very much, the word I'm looking for, like neutralizes yeah. Medea mm-hmm. in a way that like, like it actively neutralizes sort of her agency, I think perhaps to conform to tropes both of the B-movie and of the sword and sandal, but very much cast these sort of women as, you know. Well, and I wonder if that goes back to what we were discussing earlier of the atheism that Jason is speaking to. Medea is not connected so much to her magic, but to her role as a priestess to Hecate, who is a a god of witches. And like they're really playing up the pagan. And they're making this as like, even if the other Greeks is like, who's that? You know who the F that is. Like, come on. (laughs) I have not heard of this goddess. Yes, you have. Don't. mm -mm. Mm -hmm. So they're making Medea foreign, her goddess foreign. 
foreign and mm-hmm. witchy and and very separate from the gods up on Olympus who are very white and yeah all of this. Yeah, well, he- the statue of Hecate has three dog heads, yeah. which is yeah. a bit of a yeah. Hecate has she's the goddess of crossroads mm-hmm. and witchcraft and and other things, but and she has dogs. Well, and she's a, a three. I forget what the official term is. Aspected three aspected goddess. Like she, so many cool things about her. So I have a poster from yeah, throw out so there. Uh, Flaro for the month of October has released her Hecate. Yeah drawing and i bought the poster and it's going to be my halloween decoration for my office i love it so much we we didn't even mention this is the perfect episode for spooktober because this is the most skeleton-y episode that's so true (laughs) assemble your armies for the skeleton war (laughs) anyways yeah so the the hydra but the hydra i think is another sort of very clear instance of an active decision to empathize Medea, mm-hmm. because nominally, I mean, well, there's also we've taken out the the trials that Jason has to go through, where Medea, right. Jason, in the the most versions of the myth, he has to yoke a bunch of fire breathing bronze bulls and plow a field, and then sow a field with dragon teeth, and then fight. And Medea gives him magic ointments to be able to do all these things. Tells him the strategy of how to beat the dragon soldiers, the the Spartoi, we might call them, uh, the sown men. And in this movie, it's just a Jason fights a monster. Mm-hmm. And it's just Jason alone. He doesn't even have like a crew with him. Mm-hmm. Acastus is like dying and no help at all. And Medea just like looks like Well, yeah, worryingly. that was kind of like, oh, Acastus was here the whole time and now he's dead. And now he's mm-hmm. dead. I, th- I really thought, I was like, come on, Acastus, like, get up, like, help him. Like, I thought there was maybe going to be, like, this reunion or something. But no, he's just See, lying just, on the floor and dead. All I can picture is Jason with his sword hitting what looks like a rubber tree over I and know. over again. And Medea's just like, <gasps> I know, she just stands there and gasps. It's like, it's not, why are you here? There's no reason. Why? This is a very... It's a very Harryhausen-esque scene. And actually, in, in the documentary, he talks about the reason they decided to do a Hydra, because and Harryhausen literally says, like, well, we had already put dragons in pictures, so, you know, no one had done a Hydra yet, so we were going to do a Hydra. Which, of course, means, because as I'm learning the, the profile of this man, when he was the kind of he was the kind of person to, like, he was always trying to one-up himself mm-hmm. in these productions. So, And when you do stop motion, every... I also learned the way these this dynamation works, the way you get the picture-in-picture picture with um, the stop motion and the live action together. It's really fascinating. They basically rear project, like, uh, the, the live action footage, and then he animates it frame by frame in front of it. And then they, they do a thing where they, they do first the the background and then they also do it again for the foreground wow so it's insane it takes him like in in a single day he'll get like 13 to 15 frames done and film runs at 24 frames per second in this era so to do like the skeleton scene for example that took four months to just animate like three minutes so the more moving parts there are the more complex a creature is to to do in this dynamation process so like medea's hair she has i think seven snakes in her hair medusa and all, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, Medusa has seven snakes in her hair. Each one of those snakes has to be animated. So in an earlier movie, in a, It Came From Below, there's an octopus attack San Francisco, and the octopus only has six tentacles because that was all that he could handle. Oh my gosh. And he didn't call it a sextopus because that would have been. No, he called, really it a sixti- he called it a sextopus. Oh my gosh. 
And there's homages to this later because every person in the special effects business is effectively a disciple or a protege of Harryhausen. Like in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, the Kraken in that movie has six tentacles based on that Harryhausen octopus. Oh my gosh. What? There's there's things like in um in Monsters Inc. the restaurant that Mike and his girlfriend go to is is called Harryhausen's. <gasps> oh my god. Oh my god. But anyway, so but the the use having a seven-headed creature is like eight times more work because you could just have that many more moving parts, which will lead us to the skeleton. But yes, Jason fights the Hydra, he stabs it in the heart. Medea just kind of clutches her pearls yep. in the sidelines. Yes, clutches her pearls. So then we get to this this film's kind of its most enduring legacy, the thing that that it was shown when they gave Ray Harryhausen the Lifetime Achievement Award in 1992, the skeleton fight, which I think is still like pretty cool. It was really cool. That was very fun. Yeah, I liked how they did at least tie it back to the dragon teeth, the mm-hmm. spartoi. Yeah, I like that they tied it back to that because other than just being described as dragon teeth men, it's like... Yeah, what would be kind of terrifying to all of a sudden have to fight? Skeletons would definitely do it. So yeah, yeah. And in in another act of one upmanship, so in Sinbad, there's Sinbad fights a skeleton at, at one point, and they're like, "Well, we're gonna do another skeleton fight," but like, what if it was seven skeletons? <laughs> uh, which is crazy because again, like that's seven individual things to animate. And the thing I learned from the documentary, the most complex shot in this entire movie and one of the most complex shots of the entire enterprise in like Harry S's career where there's this like very split second where one of the skeletons stabs Phalaris, Andrew Fault's mm-hmm. character yeah. and just kind of jumps over his body. That is like the most complex shot because it involves to do a jump going frame by frame it involves a wire to hang the skeleton and so like that is incredibly difficult to get it to you know so it moves and jumps in a way that looks realistic whereas like you could have just had the skeleton step over him and that would have been much easier but like no we got it the skeleton's got to jump over him so that yeah. creates like 800 percent more work but i think that's just like kind of fascinating but like that is like the most technically complex shot in the entire movie is just that skeleton <laughs> jumping over the guy well and i was just thinking back to like how harryhausen's work was inspiring to so many others and going like to pirates of the caribbean like that was the coolest part was the reveal of like these pirates are dead and as they move into the light or yes. you see the skeleton you're like yeah that's that's terrifying <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. really cool so I, I like that the inspiration is there. I will say my personal favorite Hydra, though, is still Disney's Hercules Hydra. That was just that's a good one. fun. Yeah. And it worked really well in terms of like, let's show how you chop off a head and then you get more. And- <laughs> will you quit it with the head slicing thing? <laughs> Somebody call IXII. No, I really liked the skeleton fight. And I was so surprised that it was so late in the movie. I feel like I, I kept waiting for it. I was like, okay, yeah. when are we going like to have it? It's literally the last five minutes. It is. It's, it's the absolute ending. I wouldn't even call it like the climax of the movie. It's the very end scene, basically. Yeah. And it's really, really fun. And I like... I like all the skeletons. I think they originally were going to have like flesh dripping off of them, but it they said it looked too gruesome. So they just went with bare skeletons. And again, that would have been another thing where like you could have done that with actors and makeup mm-hmm. and, you know, that would have been a thing. But, but yeah. Harryhausen, like his whole craft, he's like, no, we got to make sure like yeah. there's we leave no room for doubt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like that- this is weird and inhuman and terrifying. 
But like I was almost disappointed. It's like he doesn't really defeat them, which I guess is very Jason of him. He just yeah. like runs away. He like runs into the water and they fall into the water and he, you know, gets on the boat and they sail away, but he doesn't defeat to be fair, can you kill the dead? Like that that is probably the other reason I mean, why no, that would be such a point. terrifying <laughs> opponent is like mm-hmm. yes. what can you actually do against skeletons Nothing. other than break all the bones? <laughs> well, there's a bit in my one of my favorite movies, Sam Raimi's Army of Darkness, that does feature a skeleton army at the end, much of which much of which is claymation and then um Bruce Campbell at one point like picks up a skeleton and breaks it over his knee. <laughs> Uh, there's another part where they he has like a car with like a helicopter blade on the front that like chops up all the skeletons and uh, That's incredible. they shoot the skeletons with dynamite arrows. Uh, you got to watch Army of Darkness. It's fantastic. It's all like, right, all right. I would just be like, release the puppy. <laughs> there's a great comic about that too, where it's like a puppy having a dream. Um, but also like the way they filmed that in addition to the the dynamation process i was describing where he just goes and animates the foreground and the background frame by frame with different matte paintings and rear projection they rehearsed it with extras and they did it like 10 times or something like that they rehearsed it and then on the the last time the extras just stepped out and then it was just the actors basically like shadow boxing like doing the rehearsal exactly as they practiced i had something else i was gonna say oh yes about the like the creepy unerringness which i think was a point that was made in this documentary that i really liked that was with particularly with this kind of special effects is that it has the the effect almost like a magic trick where you're like you buy in because like you know they're tricking you but you don't know how they did it and i still am like wrapping my head a little bit around like how they did some of these things we're like in many movies today now that we have sort of computer generated things we were like well you know it's computer generated like i know how they put ten thousand people in the battlefield or like made the dragon like it's a computer model or whatever like that's fine but like with movies like this there's this aspect of like i don't know how they did this it's like a it's like a practical trick or like really good practical effects are like that too where it's like i physically do not know how that was possible and that there's a buy-in there and there's also this element of this kind of animation has a very unreal feel to it and like eli was just saying like it's kind of unnerving it's kind of spooky like it doesn't look quite right mm-hmm. but in a way that's perfect because we're in a fantasy mythology you know, we're, it, mm-hmm. it, we're in a sort of almost dreamlike setting, so it shouldn't feel real. And I think like in a lot of sort of media now, there's a kind of put like people kind of seem to want things to be more realistic. And that's very much not impulse in these kinds of movies and in Harryhausen's work generally, where he's like, you know, forget real. It should feel fantastic. It should feel dreamlike. It should yeah. feel surreal and supernatural. Mm-hmm. And this kind of animation, I think, really does that in a way that you can't get even with modern special i mean sometimes but and like there's there's bits where spielberg has has said at length in speeches where he's like you know at a certain point like people might reject cgi because it's just like there's no buy-in for the mm-hmm. audience it's not mm-hmm. like watching a show there's not like we're not amazed by how they did it it's just like yeah it's a you know, artists. Or, it's or almost more entertaining to watch the like green screen stuff mm-hmm. of like what were yeah, people yeah, yeah. physically doing in order to put in the CGI. And like you get stories like Samuel L. Jackson for um, mm-hmm. when he was in uh, Star Wars, just talking about, I was like, yeah. what should I be doing with my body? He's like, I don't know, just go crazy. He's like, all right. And it's like, mm-hmm. that, that's kind of 
it's the behind the scenes that it's like, oh, that's actually just ridiculous to think of what the actor had to go through to make it look realistic on the mm-hmm. movie front for us yeah. to be like, I don't know, man, but <laughs> because they have like nothing to like act against necessarily, they they're looking at like a green brick or like maybe a stick on a puppet or something like that, and yeah, no, absolutely. There, there's also on a similar note, one of the great things if you ever when you not if ever when you go back and rewatch the Lord of the Rings trilogy to like watch particularly Legolas and Orlando Bloom's expression because he's actually making a lot of really great expressions <laughs> and he kind of expresses like I didn't really know what was going on or like what I was supposed to be looking at or like <laughs> what my face was so like you'll see him in the background he's kind of going like <laughs> I make I made a funny face for our listeners yeah I vividly remember like watching the behind the scenes for like a Harry Potter movie or something where Ray finds is Voldemort and they like digitally remove his nose. So he has like mm-hmm. the little dots on his face and it looks like kind of funny in real life. And all the actors are like, Oh no, it wasn't funny. He was terrifying. It's like, he's like <laughs> acting around this like thing that's on his nose and which I, yeah, I can't even imagine trying to act against yeah a green wall or like, a giant green thing that's going to become a dragon or something. If you want a hilarious recent example, um, Schitt's Creek, when they are doing the film release for the Crowanine for Moira Rose's character, (laughs) they release all the crows and those are fake. And so like they go through that experience of like, act like there's crows flying around you like crazy and just... (laughs) I think actually the, the best like maybe not modern example, sort of modern for, for us millennials, but in, uh, I think it really shows in Space Jam where oh, Michael yeah, Jordan, you can yeah. tell he, Michael Jordan is just acting basically like across from tennis balls. And it's, you know, it's one thing when like, I mean, even like Ian McKellen had a breakdown on the set of The Hobbit because he was just like alone in a green room. And he was like, <laughs> this is not why I got into this business. But like, even, but someone like Michael Jordan, who's like not a professional actor is like, you got to like look at a tennis ball and like, yes, it's, it's Bugs Bunny. And he like just said a funny joke, <laughs> but anyway, but like, yeah, the mad, the magic trickness of it. I mean, movies still do that, right? Movies will still do things that you're like technically like amazed and you're like confound you. And you're like, I have no idea how that, how they did that. Sh- I think the big or- one for me now, especially as an archeologist and again, throwing this out to the Amazon prime show, Hernan, they have, like almost what seems like drone shots of Tenochtitlan, Tenochtitlan built on the lake, um, mm-hmm. which was this beautiful canal city and the Temple Mayor fully mm-hmm. reconstructed with people walking up and down. And I'm just, I think that's why I always get so drawn to these moments in these movies when the Doric Temple is present and you're like, that's, that is grounded in reality, people interacting with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think to me, that's, That's maybe the next best thing. It's not the interactions with other entities, but actually being in spaces as they existed in the past. Because we've only... I love that. Yeah, Yeah. we've only gotten to imagine the setting, but actually getting to recreate the setting. Like for me as an archaeologist, that's what it's all about. Like put put the people in the place that was there and see what (laughs) happens. Yeah, yeah. So then, yeah, we, 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 we literally, we hit a hard end where Jason jumps off the cliff and the, the bones of the skeletons also fall off the cliff. And they can't swim, apparently? Well, they're skeletons. They have no body fat. Do bones? I'm, I'm they sorry. Don't, bones don't they, float, so. 
I'm sorry. Like, they were moving. Skeletons also don't move. They should have been able to swim. All right, we're gonna, we gotta ask our we gotta ask our <laughs> listeners: Can skeletons swim? I'm sure that somewhere on the internet this discussion this has been discussed on a D and D forum. Oh, like, absolutely! Can skeletons swim? 100%. This is exactly the kind this of thing. This is that would exactly come up like the, the kind of thing forum. that D and D. You would have to debate that pretty hard, honestly. I, okay, but no, I like, agree. If the skeleton can walk, why can't the skeleton swim? Because it cannot float. I mean, it would uh, just. I think it, it could sink to the bottom and walk along the bottom, but I don't like think Pirates it could of the Caribbean. Swim. They don't swim, do they? They walk along the that's bottom. That's true. They, they sink. They... Yeah, I'm saying they sink. They yeah. walk along the bottom. Yeah. And that, they that's up. fair. Okay. So why didn't quickly. they do that? It's not like they can run after the boat with sails and rowers. Because we got to end the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Much like we have to end this podcast. Okay. So my question is, is like, that's where it ends. But, uh, along with Zeus and Hera's like, don't worry, honey, round two. And then I don't think round two ever happens. But where would you guys want this to end? Because that was my thing is like, I mean, if you have to end it, there's too much Argonautica, not enough time for a movie. And sure. like, I was just thinking, it's like, I don't know. I think I'd want the actual family connection and then having the chase scene of her brother coming after her and like mm-hmm. what Medea has to do. She like, that is really be- because they're, you know, they're giving us this, like she is sacrificing an entire city and it's like, no, get rid of that and be like, she has to choose between her family and her husband who is, or the man who's going to be her husband. And right. like, that was a very lived reality for women at that time. So like, for me, the moment would have been like, capture brother, chop him up, leave him in the water so the rest of the family can find him, and you escape into the sunset. So for me, that's where I'd end it, but I'd be really then curious Then you're, you're ending with like a, that's like a Cape Fear ending where she like turns <laughs> at the very end and looks at the camera and there's like a nyeh, nyeh, nyeh sound or like, and like she like winks or it's like. Something. Like, I, I feel like that would have been more, because like then you truly feel like they escaped I guess that's what the skeletons right. falling into the water were. But like to me, that's like that would have been the better escape. And then and then yeah. because the next journey is they are married and having to deal with the repercussions of that and the return home. Yeah. I if in my heist movie. <laughs> yes. Tell us about your heist movie and how it ends. <laughs> well, this is kind of like a heist movie because the heist movie ends when you walk out the door, right? Ex- well, exactly. I'm thinking like the ending of Ocean's Eleven. They're all just like standing in front of that the fountain and like, you know, nothing really super resolved. There's like almost like a little epilogue where Danny gets out of prison and Tess is there. I'm sorry, I might love Ocean's Eleven a little too much. <laughs> I was also thinking going back to the movie Atlantis, but like I liked that ending where everyone's like dressed to the nines with diamonds and stuff on. It's, it's like, like yeah, there are like ah. there's been a a time a time jump maybe, but like it's clear that something has occurred. Yeah, there's the heist has been won, so like it was successful. So maybe we just like jump a few months into the future and. It's Jason and Medea, and maybe she's had her first child, and they've been married for a little bit, and maybe there's some, you know, political intrigue that is hinted at for, you know, round two. But yeah, I wanted just, like, a little bit more. I needed that little epilogue of Danny getting out of prison. I think in the context of this movie, if I were to go back and add... I mean, this movie's already, like, two hours long. It is. It's long. So... It, it it there would you know there need to be some some cuts but the end to this movie is just Jason goes back to Thessaly and uh, I something happens to to Peleus either he 
dies or Jason kills him or, or you know, something happens and then Jason's on the throne with Medea, boom, end credits. In the myth, as Christy is alluding to, there's a whole lot more because there's a whole return journey oh, yeah. where Medea does a bunch of stuff. And, and what I like, the, the story that I'm interested in is, is this, this evolution that is hinted at in the Argonautica and is realized in the plays that came before it where Medea, in order to escape Colchis, Medea kills, brings her own brother onto the Argo, kills him and throws him into the water to, to give them enough time to escape. And then later she uses her magic to kill, to kill Talos. And then this is, I think, more in a, my first experience, I should have mentioned this, but my first experience with the Argonautica was actually very early and where I read a book called Jason and the Golden Fleece and the Heroes Before Achilles by Pedriac Column, which was like a mythological, like ch- not quite a children's story. It was a little more YA skewing towards Y, but like, you know, a primer for kids. And it was basically a breakdown of a bunch of Greek myths centered around the Argonautica. And they would take sort of times or the, it was a singular narrative. And then they would break off to like tell a story about like Hercules or tell a story about Atalanta or Orpheus or something like that. But in that, there's kind of, there's this element where they go to Circe, famous witch from uh, mythology, and Circe basically warns Medea, like, if you keep doing magic, something bad's going to happen. And then they get back to Thessaly, and then Medea uses magic to trick Pelias' daughters into killing him. She does this whole trick with a pot that's going to supposedly bring him back to, or make him young again, Mm -hmm. but she just tricks uh, his daughters into chopping him up and boiling him. Uh, then they get kicked out of Yolkas, and then she uses magic again. And then Jason basically starts wooing another princess, and Medea is left high and dry with their children. And then she kills their children and flees on a dragon, and, and it, the whole relation goes south. And then eventually Jason is just crushed by the mast of the Argo that falls on him. Which, as I mentioned, there is this tradition in mythology of heroes, you don't really get to see, heroes don't really die gracefully. Nope. Mm-hmm. Not a one. Nope. <laughs> Which is another, I mean, but that's another tradition. That's a whole nother movie and there, there, that's a whole, or a miniseries or whatever, but that's a whole nother thing that just looks at Medea and the, the sacrifices she made and the betrayal that she feels. Because when Jason also is about to leave her, and I, I try to stress this when I teach the Medea in my classes, that it's not just that he's cheating on her. Mm-hmm. It's that he is, she, she's, she's sacrificed so much. She is a barbarian in Greece, which means she has no rights. Um, she has no sort of legal standing for herself. Jason's sort of abandonment of her is effectively a death sentence. Yes. Hence why that betrayal is cut so deep and why she might be sort of moved to do something as drastic as kill her children. But I guess maybe in the end, Medea gets the last laugh because she gets to fly away. And Jason just kind of like, he kind of lives out this like sad old man who like he's past his prime until he dies narrative. Yeah. It always makes me wonder because like, yeah, none of the heroes age well. And it kind of, it's interesting because you do have gods represented in two age groups, young gods like Apollo and Hermes who are kind of like the ideal youthful male body. And then you have the older gods like Zeus and Poseidon who are bearded, still ripped. Like, you know, they'll... Naturally. Yeah, they still look great. But like there there really does seem to be this angst of like once you can't do the heroic deeds anymore, like if you can't serve in the army anymore or something like that, have lost purpose. 
like that really seems to be it it's like you lose purpose mm-hmm. or you're not needed and i think that goes to the gods too it's like are you really even needed anymore what right yeah what more can you do for your people once you're past a certain point like i midlife crisis sort of thing happening yeah. and it just goes very badly for most of these guys so well maybe it says something about the sort of like anxiety of masculinity in in this ancient culture of like how you value yourself in society is these sort of deeds that you do as we've said before like if your very existence is just sort of i am heroic therefore whatever i do is heroic if you can't do anything anymore are you still a hero and that sounds terrifying as yeah coming to the end of that just sounds terrifying and I don't think this is, this isn't unique to ancient masculinity oh, or what no, we not call toxic masculinity because I'm watching right now, I'm watching Ted Lasso and one of the characters is a soccer star who's basically at the end of his career. You know, he's aging out of being a, or I should say a football star who's at the end of his career. He's aging out of stardom and like transitioning to the next stage of life and dealing with that. And, and even I'm reminded of, there's a, a Tennyson poem, Ulysses, where it's about Ulysses or Odysseus after he comes home where he kind of doesn't know what to do with himself and he just yearns like he was really living when he was out having his odyssey being on adventures and just sitting on the you know in Ithaca being the king is harrowing or draining to him like he he doesn't know how to exist outside of that her like being in the heroic cycle like they don't retire well i guess the phrase is old wolves don't die gracefully yeah like the only elder heroic figure i can think of is nestor and he's literally at the trojan war he's 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 not mm-hmm. fighting but like he has purpose there right. yeah yeah and, like achilles and hercules get out of this because they die in their prime or shortly after the prime there's various traditions about what happens to odysseus there's one in a, a much later greek poem that I, I work on where he's actually he's killed by his son with Circe, where his son through Circe kills him, I think maybe by accident, but he kills him with a um, a spear that's dipped in stingray venom, which there's a sort of irony in that, that he's killed by like a fish, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the yeah. poem this comes from is actually all about fish. I also just flashbacked to um, uh, the Irwin. crocodile hunter Steve Irwin. Yep. It made yeah. me sad. Uh, I'm trying to think of other, there's also very few heroes. I mean, Orpheus, he gets his, after Eurydice, he, he mm-hmm. gets ripped apart by maenads. Right. Trying to think of other heroes. There's only one that I can think of that actually retires with any grace, and it's from a much later source. And it's Diomedes, our boy. Our boy. My boy Diomedes. <laughs> uh, where in the Aeneid, they uh, the Italians send an envoy to Diomedes, and they're like, hey, do you want to come? You used to fight Trojans. You want to fight Trojans with us? And Diomedes is like, I'm over that. <laughs> I'm done. I'm done fighting Trojans. Like, no more. Love that for him. Yeah. <laughs> Theseus falls off the cliff that his his father had thrown himself off of. I know that. What happens mm-hmm. to Perseus? I don't think we ever. He establishes that he he goes east and he becomes the Persians. Huh. It's kind of vague. Which is usually a good outcome if it's vague. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Bellerophon is thrown off Pegasus, right. trying to reach Olympus. Right. Uh, yeah, and Jason's crushed by the mass. Like they, and there's this, and Heracles I think embodies this really really well. Where like the kind of ideals that make the hero the things you want the the warlikeness the deeds the killing the like wooing or capturing of of princesses like these don't adjust well to like peacetime and so they mm-hmm. like they can't even acclimate back to their own 
you know, it's almost like a Rambo situation where like right. you, you come back from war and like you can't even reintegrate into society. Like you don't fit back into society. Which yeah. I wonder is if that's like an actual translation of of real world experience of hoplite warriors mm-hmm. going through such trauma that they can't reacclimate to what like the Athenians would call, you know, like civil society or something like that, which I think is really cool. That's like an actual, you know, post-traumatic stress, but expanded into an entire mythological. Yeah. In our first year at grad school, Peter Meinick uh, gave a talk. Uh, Peter Meinick, the scholar who works on ancient tragedy, he gave a talk where essentially his thesis was all ancient plays are, are war plays. Like they're all about war and either going to war or coming back from war or like being about to go to war which I still think is a little bit overprescription. It's a little generous, but I think there is something that like a lot of them are like very much concerned with like heroes and, and, and even a scene like, like a play like the Hippolytus, which is, a, you know, Theseus is the king and it's yeah. him dealing with his son. Or like Theseus kind of makes a bad king. And there's a lot of stories about like Theseus has king. He's like, there's, there's problems there. So the ones that have like maybe the, the ones that have the kind of best exits are the ones that either die young or die in really vague circumstances. Yeah. And just to go off with the the war theme of plays is that a lot of them are also from the perspective of women who are controlling of domestic spaces. And so to have the men to come back to these spaces, seen through the eyes of the woman is just goes to show just how really disruptive that is. Like Odysseus mm-hmm. returning home, that's what Penelope has been waiting for this whole time. And yet it's pure carnage right. mm-hmm. as yeah. a result. And there's part of the end of the Odyssey is so weird because, I mean, people think that the last book of the Odyssey is a later edition or an insertion or, you know, there's something weird going on because it's like trying to kind of wrap up because of this very real problem where say Odysseus did come home and he killed all of the young nobles in this whole like region or island chain or or wherever he killed just all the nobles here. Like there are consequences for doing something. No matter how hard they were hitting on your wife. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We took a serious turn at the end. I don't know if we have something light to end this on. Um, I feel like this today's conversation almost did the opposite for me. What it did last week where like, after hashing it out, it's like, okay, maybe I like clash of the Titans versus like talking about this is just, it's like maybe I didn't like this as much as I thought I did upon watching it. It, it leaves so much wanting in the end. Is that just because – so here – my question on that is say you – this is a hard question, a hard question I think to answer. But say you knew nothing about Jason or Medea. How might you react to this movie? I would like Jason a lot more if I didn't know anything else. I feel like he had a lot of agency and a lot of like – gumption he was like talking back to the gods but he was also obviously favored by them so he he's much more of a, an intriguing character if i didn't know other versions of jason and i feel like i wouldn't bear i would barely have any feelings about medea because there's almost no space for us to have any information about medea so it'd be kind of like well that's kind of weird i guess mm-hmm all right, I'm glad Jason got away and won the day. Yeah, I can't really disagree with anything Laj just said in terms of I liked Jason for a lot of those same reasons. Is like he seemed to have a lot more agency than Perseus. He The questioning of the gods and his interactions with the gods was really interesting and I think also reflective of what was happening in the literature 
for the time that the Argonautica came out. So I liked that. Hercules forever, like keep bringing him back. But yeah, I otherwise Medea didn't serve a purpose. And because I absolutely love her, that's probably why I'm so heartbroken about it. But if I didn't know who she was, and I'd be like, okay, your waist is too small. Eat something, please. Or take off the corset. <laughs> Whatever is happening, take care of yourself. Yeah, I I think I, I like this movie in the landscape, in the cinema landscape that I think it, come, it, it comes out in. And particularly in contrast to Clash, which in some ways feels like a sort of simpler version where like more sort of care and attention went into like the script and the acting of this although like you both said we're uh, i think in some ways sort of cursed by knowledge like thanos <laughs> uh, where you know like knowing the sort of what ifs and the alternatives and the the would have and could have uh bars it i had a i had a final thing but to mention but it's kind of shoehorny and has nothing to do with anything we're talking about if, if anyone wants to jump on another idea shoehorn us in we want it shoehorn it away okay yeah <laughs> mostly just because i watched this documentary last night or something but another fascinating thing is is the ray harryhausen foundation was sort of started to preserve both like the sort of technique and the history of this style of animation but also to preserve his own legacy. And in like 2008, Randy Cook, who is probably most famous because he did the special effects for Lord of the Rings, and I think Harry Harryhausen's daughter or one of his members of his estate, they opened up a garage and they found a bunch of old models from his old movies, like horns from the, the dragon from Sinbad and, and one of the harpies heads and just all this stuff. And there's actually like still today, you can go, there's a museum set up. It's, it's in England where, where Harryhausen lived and mostly worked. He had a studio in, in London, I think. But it's been this foundation has been preserving a lot of the originals. Like you can like they still have all of the models from all these movies. They have Calibos. You can go see. But the other the or the big a big push and benefactor of this foundation was Peter Jackson, uh, who himself is like a protege. And one of his earliest films, when he was 15, he made a stop action film that features effectively the Cyclops from the Sinbad. It like looks exactly the same, but there's like he makes his own little Harry Helsen film in like 1970 something, whenever he, whenever he was born, which I just thought was like really nice. But yeah, the Harry Helsen Foundation. You can go see like all of these models, and they have these all That'd preserved. Really cool. I mean, speaking as an archaeologist, we love hoarders, and um, <laughs> exactly. I, I, this dude, he literally yeah. had a whole garage just full of this old movie Bury shit. It. We'll come get you later. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love it. We should make a pilgrimage. See, well, because yeah, I want to go see. Yeah, that would be really cool. I was just gonna say on a final weird note to go with it. Like that happened recently with the Cleopatra set. Like it got buried in the California desert, and archaeologists went out. It's like we found some of the sphinxes that were part of the set, and it's like (laughs) Egyptian archaeology in California. Huzzah. And I'm like, hey. Okay, last take, last take. And as I highly approve whoever's tweet this was, you made my day. It was, I want to be buried with a bunch of Bratz dolls so that someone will unbury me a thousand years from now and assume that I am some priestess of a really creepy cult. And I'm like, yes, Bratz dolls. That is the go-to right there. <laughs> What a weird like somebody's gonna make the like art the evolution of like dolls in American culture in the twentieth century and there's gonna be this weird blip that was pets. <laughs> very, yes. We're like we're like randomly they decided that the heads should be four <laughs> feet wide. Well, especially like tracking the evolution from like a Barbie to a mm-hmm. brat is 
freaking fascinating. Even talking like art historically. Oh, yes. Like that's absolutely incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I could see 2000 years from now when they track and and talk about our art in an art history class. (laughs) Although I'm thinking like the only thing more terrifying than finding like bone, human remains in a place you don't want to find them, finding a doll. Yeah. No. Dolls creep me out. I don't like them. I have a, in my syllabus, I have a strict no wooden puppet rule. Like I don't want to see or hear about a old wooden, old timey wooden puppet. Is that like... Do you have to put that in there? Someone brought an... Yeah, I do, to make sure people read my syllabus. Um. Yeah, mummies, fine. Bodies, fine. If I find a doll while I'm digging, I will think I'm cursed. I'm like, nope, I'm out. I'm out of the business. I'm probably dead already. It's too late, but it's over. All right, I think it's about that time. time. This is another two and a half hour episode. I think we just so. have too much fun. Uh, anything we want to plug before we sign off? I got off? all my plugs in already, I feel like. Mm, yeah. Sweet. Good. So yeah, uh, thank you for listening. And you can follow us on Twitter at, at @digmovies and visit us on moviesweedig.com and listen to us on most platforms wherever you know you can find podcasts we're on we're on the big ones thank you again for for listening to us listening to us and we're going to be back talking about the 1997 odyssey miniseries featuring armand asante with uh another special guest and maybe including christy but another special guest as well <laughs> all right thank you all and uh bye guys bye, bye.